Block KC, how we living? Hey, it is good to be back with you guys. Hey, if you missed last week, my name is Scott Johns. I'm a pastoral intern here at Lenexa Baptist Church. And I love the block. I'm a big fan. I told you guys all about it last week. But it was this time last week, about this time of the week, when uh, I got a text, right? And it was a text that said, hey, we've got bad news. It's not bad news, but we've got a big ask, right? Our speaker for this next week actually fell through. And, you know, we exhausted all other options, right? We tried everyone else. You know, we even asked Pastor Nick, who's on a mission trip in Mexico this week, and, hey, Scott, we know it's a big ask, but could you come back next week? And, you know, I kind of sifted through all that. You know, there was all that stuff they said about, like, exhausting other options and I chose to think that they wanted me back this week, right? So I'm back, and I said, all right, that's great, I'll do it, but what do you want me to talk about? And they said, yeah, we'd like you to talk about uh, Ephesians chapter 6 and uh, address this idea of spiritual warfare. I said, great, and we're here, right? And so the reason it's like that is because maybe you're in this room. We know that not everyone in this room might be following Jesus or they're just trying to look at what it could look like for them to do so. So you might be in this room and say, I have no idea what that even means. It's valid. Right? At one point, I didn't really either. And, or maybe you're like me, and you just know that people have this tendency usually to either over-spiritualize spiritual warfare, as in make it everything, or they under-spiritualize it, and they don't make enough of it. My goal tonight is to do neither of those things, but to look at the Word, look at what God says, and, and that everyone in this room, no matter where you're at in your walk with God, that you would take a step forward, that you would be challenged, and that you would learn a little bit about what spiritual warfare is in the Bible. Right? So I was thinking of this idea of a war, of warfare. And naturally, the easy thing would have been to think of like a, an actual war. But instead, I thought about baseball. Right? You know, this story that I'm about to tell is not about me. Right? Usually, I like to come up here and tell sports stories that have to do with me. Sometimes I'm the hero. That's not good, but I like to think about baseball in this situation and why. Um, So you think about the concept of a baseball pitcher, right? And what is his goal? Well, he's in a battle, per se, with the guy at at home plate, right? His goal is to get the ball across home plate to get him out, right? Or to get him to hit it to one of his teammates, and therefore he's out. It's frequently described as a pitcher's duel. It's two pitchers dueling against each other, or even a duel between the pitcher and the batter, right? So I was thinking uh, about baseball there, but that's because there was this video clip that went viral about a month ago of this baseball player. His name's Mike Trout, right? For those of you who don't know, Mike Trout is one of the best players in all of the Major League Baseball. He, he signed a contract that's worth over $250 million to play baseball. Uh, he's incredibly good, right? But this video clip went viral of him. So just to preface, you might watch this and say, Scott, I have no idea what that just said. We're going to break it down after, right? So let's take a look at this clip real quick. So you might see that video and you're like, Scott, what does that mean? What did we just watch I don't even get it, and to be honest, I couldn't even hear it, right? And so that's okay, because I'll break it down for us here. What the announcer was talking about is Mike Trout, who's playing in the outfield, right? He's not the pitcher. He's like over 100, 150 feet away from his teammate, who's the pitcher, right? But he can see all the way from the outfield that his pitcher, whose name is Elvis Paguero, is tipping his pitches, 
what that means is he's doing different things on the mound when he's throwing a different pitch, right? You see, when you're a, a baseball pitcher, you throw all different types of pitches, right? But you want to try to trick the batter. But as soon as what, uh, what, what the batter's trying to do is they're trying to figure out what your tells are. So the pitcher is trying to do every single pitch in a way that looks the exact same. Right, but Mike Trout could see all the way from the outfield that his pitcher is keeping the ball really close to him when he's throwing an off-speed pitch, like a curveball, and he's doing something completely obvious when he's throwing a fastball. And what happened, sure enough, the pitcher got absolutely destroyed, right? Like, major league players, they're looking for the tiniest of things, and this was so obvious that you could see it from the outfield. So what happened is, of course, they got killed. They lost 11-4, to right? That pitcher had a terrible outing. They hit almost everything off him. But it's because this pitcher, Elvis Paguero, what he didn't know is it was completely obvious what he was doing. He had no idea until they informed him in the post-game conference that he was even, like, doing that. You know, they, he had, they had no idea that he wasn't setting himself up for success, You see, he works all season watching film to try to not do that. And he was so blind to it. But little did he know that he had absolutely no chance from the moment he stepped on the mound because of what he did. Right, so from the beginning of the battle, he had already lost. Right, he had no chance of success. So I was thinking about that tonight as I was thinking about spiritual warfare, this idea that that we are in a battle Right, but we have an opportunity to either set ourselves up for success or not. Right, so where I thought we'd start tonight in, in spiritual warfare, it would be helpful to start with a definition. And you might look at this and say, Scott, that's pretty simple, but that's my goal. So my definition is this. It, it's the reality that there is an enemy who is Satan, who is actively fighting to get you to turn from the glory of God to the glory of yourself. His goal is to get you to turn from God's glory and to glorify yourself instead. So that's the definition of warfare, but who is Satan or the enemy, right? You might be able to say a few of these things, but I use this resource. It's called gotquestions.org. It's a great resource. You can type in questions you have about spirituality, and it gives you really short biblical answers. So this is what I got when I searched who is Satan, right? It says, the Bible says Satan is an angelic being who rebelled from God and fell from his position in heaven due to his sin. Now he is completely opposed to God and does all within his power to thwart God's purposes. Satan became the ruler of this world and the prince of the power of the air. He's described in the Bible as a liar, deceiver, tempter, accuser, slanderer, and the adversary, among other things, right? So now we've looked at the the reality that Satan is actively fighting against us, and after taking a brief look at who Satan is, we're going to be taking a look at a passage in the Bible in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, that addresses how we can fight back and succeed in the fight to glorify God. But before I do that, let's pray. God, thank you for tonight. Lord, I thank you just for everyone that's in this room, no matter where they're at with you, God, whether they are just investigating what it could look like to follow you or whether they've been walking with you with a while. God, I pray that we would approach your word with a humble heart. God, would you help me handle it correctly? God, would you help us become better followers of you or see our need to follow you? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Right, so some background here because we haven't been studying the book of Ephesians. 
right? This is written by the same guy who wrote 2 Timothy. It's Paul. Paul was this guy who actually went and persecuted Christians. He went and killed them and then had his life radically transformed by God, gave his life to Christ, and then became one of the greatest missionaries the world has ever seen. Right, he then went out, and instead of persecuting Christians, persecuting Christians, he, he lived to build them up, build up God's church. Right, and so Paul had gone to this place called Ephesus in the past as a missionary. Right, Ephesus was this huge port city. It was this home of many Greek and Roman gods, the worship of it. Right, and so Paul now is writing from prison, and the first couple chapters of Ephesians, one through three, they're very like theological in nature, as in they describe who God is, uh, who we are because of Jesus, what Jesus in his life changed for us. Right, it talks about how uh, we, we can have unity with Christ, how we have been redeemed in Christ, how we have new life in Christ, all these things, but in, in chapters one through three, he doesn't tell us to do anything. There's no commands. But then in chapters 4 to the end of the letter, there's a direct shift where Paul begins to give all these commands. Therefore, like in light of how Jesus lived, in light of who Jesus was, this is how you should live. That's how the book closes out. That's chapters 4 through 6. Paul begins to give them all these commands, um, such as you should be united in Christ. Hey, you should be imitators of Christ. Hey, this is how you should love your wife. Hey, wives, this is how you should love your husbands. Hey, children, this is how you should love and obey your parents. Those are just some some brief highlights, but it all leads us to where we're at today in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, where Paul is giving the closing remarks for his letter. So if you have your Bibles or if you have your phone, open with me to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. Verse 10, it says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Paul begins here with two commands that are the basis of what we're going to be taking a look at today. First he says, be strong in the Lord, and then to put on the full armor of God. We're going to take a look at what that means. But first Paul says to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The Greek word that Paul uses for strong has this this root word which translates to inerrant power, like power that's inside of you. However, the way that it's used here translates more as to put power in. In other words, hey, fill yourself up with Christ. Hey, allow God to strengthen you or be strong in Christ. As I was thinking about this idea of of being strong in Christ, I was reminded that being strong in Christ is not defined in the Bible how you might think it would be. Paul, writing to a different church in the book of 2 Corinthians, says this. It says, And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. More gladly, therefore, I would rather boast of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. As 1 Corinthians 12, 9. This is Paul saying that God showed him that God's grace is sufficient for him, and that when he is weak, he is strong. This seems backwards or maybe even contradictory, but I think what Paul is highlighting here is the reality that we must understand who we are in the eyes of God. We must understand who we are in God's sight. So, in other words, before we have any chance of being strong, we must first understand that we are weak. We are weak without God. This is actually the basis of the entire Christian faith. 
It's the same principle that brings us salvation, that brings us eternity with God. You see, in order to truly know Christ, you must first understand that without him you are destined for death, for separation from God. You must understand that there is nothing that you can do to earn God's love. It's through faith alone that you're saved. It's not about you. You can't do it. You have to understand that without Christ, you are dead. You are nothing. And when you understand that, it is then and then alone that you can truly come to know Christ. To understand that that Jesus came, he died, and he lived. And that through that, that you can have eternal life with him and accept the gift that God has given you. We must first understand, though, that we are weak without God. But what happens then? Well, when you come to know Christ, you're officially on the other team. You're on God's team. Right? You're no longer a part of the world, which the Bible says is ruled by who? It's Satan. Right? And now you're a part of the kingdom of God. You switched teams. You are now a bigger target, a bigger threat to Satan. The war has only begun. So Paul, knowing this, knowing that even as a believer, he has to understand that apart from God, he is nothing, he commands the church in Ephesus to be strong in the Lord. They have to remember where their strength comes from. The foundation for everything he is about to tell them stems from this underlying belief that they have to be strong in Christ. Paul then continues with his second main main command, which is to put on the full armor of God. And why? Well, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. He says to armor up, you have to get ready for battle because the devil has schemes. He has methods. So what are the devil's schemes? Well, there are many answers to that question. His deception can can come in many different forms and it can lead to many different outcomes. So the better question here is actually not what are they, but what is his goal? And it's in our definition. It's to get you to turn from the glory of God to the glory of yourself. Right, so we looked at this last week. It's Genesis 3. It's Adam and Eve in the garden. When Satan came along, everything was perfect. And the, it was, sorry, everything was perfect. And then Satan came along and said, hey, Adam and Eve, does God really want what's best for you? Right, you should try eating from this one tree that he told you not to. Does God really want what's best for you? And he convinces Adam and Eve to turn from the glory of God to the glory of their self. From the glory of what is perfect to the glory of what I want. To satisfy their needs. Right, that's the exact same scheme that's going on today. We talked about that a little bit last week. So what scheme does he use against you? Well, you're actually the best judge of that. Maybe this is his approach for you. Hey, you should go to that website again that you said you're never going to go to again. That even though you said last time is the last time, hey, you should go to that place again. Right, or maybe it's, hey, you should, you should date that guy. You should go on a date with that guy. Even though he's not a believer. Right, even though your friends aren't really fired up about him and you know he's not at the same place spiritually as you are, hey, you should go on a date with him. Hey, you should go there. You should do that. You should do this. What is it for you? You're actually the best judge of that. You know yourself. Guys, the the reality is if you're a believer, there is an enemy who is actively seeking to make you stumble. 
Look how, first, or look how Peter describes this in 1 Peter. It says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The enemy prowls around, Satan prowls around, just waiting for you to let your guard down. He's waiting for you to be vulnerable. He's waiting for you to not put on your armor, to not armor up. We need to be aware of this. But what is the armor? Well, before we get there, we're going to continue what our battle is. Well, Paul continues in, in verses 12 through 13 saying this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. One thing that initially stuck out to me here is Paul doesn't use language as to say this warfare is avoidable. He says, for our struggle. Not even just us, it's him included there. In other words, it's inevitable. There is a struggle, and are you ready for it? He then continues to remind us that, as we have already mentioned, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, as in it's not against man, but it's against forces of darkness and forces of wickedness, against rulers, against powers. Guys, I understand this is a very difficult thing to grasp, it can be very intimidating. It's really hard to understand. In fact, if we focus just in on verse 12, the reality of the enemy and the war we're in, it's actually quite depressing. But luckily, Paul continues, not only is there this reality, but there is a remedy, right? God has provided us a way out. Paul describes the reality that we're fighting a battle against spiritual forces that we cannot see and we struggle to comprehend. But he says, therefore... Or in other words, because this is true, even though this is true, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. So that you will be able to stand firm. You see, God nor Paul left us hanging here. He provided a way out. He repeats himself by telling us to armor up. To telling, by telling us to put on the armor of God and doesn't just say we might have success. He uses the same words he uses in verse 11 and says that we will be able to. See, look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It says this, No temptation has overtaken you except for what is common to mankind. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. So that you will be able to endure. This verse here, it's a great verse of hope. Look, God has provided a way of escape. He's provided a way out. But if you look, there's there's a bit of a confusing phrase. It says, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. What does that mean? God's allowing this? He's allowing us to be tempted? Well, that doesn't sound very loving. To be honest, guys, this this is confusing. It's it's a talk of its own. But we see a picture of this in the book of Job. The Bible says Job was a faithful servant of God. He was very successful. He was wealthy. He had a great family. He had a lot of land and a lot of animals. That's how you were wealthy in that day. Right, And Satan came to God and asked if he could mess with him. He said, Job only loves you because you blessed him. Right? Job only loves you because he has all those things. If you take those away, surely he won't praise you the same way. 
And what do we see? Uh, we see Satan had to ask God if it was okay to mess with him. Right, but what happens is God allows Satan to take everything from Job. He took his animals, he took his wealth, and even his family, and Job is left with nothing. And what do we see? Job 1.21, it says this. This is Job speaking. He said, naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We see a beautiful picture of Job who just had everything taken from him, literally everything taken from him, which God allowed. And what does Job do? He blesses the name of God his Father. God God allows our faith to be tested. He allows us to go through trials, but for what purpose? So that in them we may see the goodness of God, which is not reliant on our circumstances. The goodness of God is not relying on our circumstances. In other words, when bad things are happening, God is still good and the gospel is still true. We can and we must continue to give God the glory. The book of James says this in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. It says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James, who who wrote this, he's the brother of Jesus. He says we should not only persevere through trials, but that we should consider them joy. Why? Because when our faith is tested, we are forced to rely on Christ alone, not ourselves, not our own glory, but the glory and goodness of Christ, which is unwavering. And what is the result? It's perseverance, which makes you mature and complete. Perseverance. We're going to unpack that one later, but perseverance is important in the eyes of God. So now we're at the point where we understand the reality is warfare. We see that God allows our faith to be tested. And so Paul tells us to put on the full armor of God, but he has yet to tell us what that looks like. And so here we are. Look with me in verse 14. It says this, stand firm therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Here what we see is Paul, he's providing an illustration here of a Roman soldier. Right, so Ephesus, like we said, it's a city in Rome, so he's using this illustration of their own soldiers. So the people in Ephesus would have understood this illustration. Right, so while it seems kind of weird to us, we're talking about this idea of armor that's kind of outdated, they would have understood it completely. But he uses this to compare the things that God gives us to fight back against Satan. Right, and so here are the components. It's the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the readiness of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. Let's take a look at each of them. So first we have the belt of truth. This comes from that phrase, having girded your loins with truth. I know that's weird, but what it's talking about is putting on the belt of truth. You see, the belt was a vital part of the Roman soldier's equipment. And the belt was a mark of preparedness. The belt didn't just hold their pants up. Why? Because they weren't wearing pants. They were wearing a robe, right? And, and they would just tuck or tie the end of their robe up in their belt so that they could run and move unhindered. It showed that they were ready. 
Right? It was a mark of readiness, that they had their belt, that they had their rope tied up in it. It says the belt of truth. And what do we know about truth? Well, we talked about it last week. It's John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is truth, and his name is Jesus, right? So Jesus is our truth. And this is important for the war because Satan is a liar. Like we said, the Bible calls him a deceiver. And we need to combat Satan's lies with truth. So what lies does Satan frequently tell you? What does he try to get you to believe? For me personally, it's, it's lies of inadequacy that, that fuel insecurity. That's a big one he uses against me. Think lower of myself. In, in the past, for me, it's been body image insecurity. And then on top of that, the, the lie that men aren't supposed to feel like that. <laughs> it's a lie he's used to get, out from, to get at me and turn from the glory of God to the glory of Scott. Those are some examples from my life, but, but what is it for you? What are the lies you're tempted to believe? Combat them with truth. Right Next, we see the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness refers to the state of being right with God. The biblical term for being right with God is to be justified. Right? It's the, the, justified is the act of being made righteous in God's sight. We know that when we confess our sins and when we place our trust in Jesus... Uh, as our Savior, we are justified. We are positionally made right with God. Paul here is seemingly not referring to that one-time righteousness, but he's referring to the act of living righteously or pursuing what is righteous. It's the action of having integrity and pursuing what is true, what is holy, what is honorable. You see, if we're living unrighteously, we're an easy target of the enemy. If we are pursuing sin... We're an easy target. He doesn't have to try hard. We're called to continually flesh out sin in our lives. That means to continually deny our flesh, to find sin in our life, to confess it, and to turn back to God. We are to, the Bible says to clothe ourselves in righteousness, to put on righteousness, to choose it daily. The question here is, what is a sin area that you've been struggling with? Have you let someone else know who can hold you accountable? How's your fight against sin going? Are you living for what is righteous? Next we see it says, Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Having shod means to literally bind to. It says to literally bind your feet to the preparation of the gospel. Other translations say, As shoes put on the readiness given by the gospel. Paul's referring to the importance of shoes for a few reasons. You see, it was a a common practice in that day for soldiers to sharpen sticks, to put them in the ground so that when the soldiers were walking, it would pierce their foot. And what happens when they pierce their foot? They were hurt. They could not move. And if you cannot move well, you cannot fight well. But what does Paul say the shoes are? It's not just the gospel, but the preparation of it, the readiness that it brings. The gospel is a firm foundation that you can trust and build your life on. In the midst of trials, the the gospel is a reminder that we have already obtained victory over sin and the cross. So are you preaching the gospel to yourself daily? In other words, what I mean by that, are you spending time each day thinking about 
what Jesus did for you on the cross and who you are in Christ? Are you boldly sharing the gospel, knowing that Satan will try to do everything in his power to prevent you from doing so? That's another thing he's really concerned about is he does not want people to come to know Jesus. So are you sharing the gospel? After the preparation of the gospel of peace, we have the shield of faith. The idea of a shield is pretty straightforward, but obviously the shield was used to protect the soldiers from arrows. They put it up. It says to uh, use the shield to extinguish flaming arrows. What he's talking about is a common practice in that day was to light the arrows on fire. Right, And so the, the soldiers would literally wet the, the leather on the outside of their shields so that when they were hit, it would literally extinguish the arrow. It would put the fire out. Paul says our shield is our faith. It's our faith in God. Our faith that God can protect us from what we are going through. Well, if our shield is faith, then what are the arrows? What are the flaming arrows? Well, it's temptation. It's lust. It's impurity, it's greed, doubt, lies. All those are the ammo of of Satan. You see, he throws arrow after arrow, but the arrows cannot penetrate the shield or the protection that our faith in God provides us. The thing about faith is it removes us from the equation. It forces us to place our trust not in ourselves, but in God as the ultimate protector and provider. How beautiful is that? It's not about us. We can remove ourselves from the equation, and God is our ultimate protection. But what does it tell us to do? It says we must take up the shield of faith, as in this is an action. Here Paul is calling them not to be passive, but to be active in their faith. It is an action. And what does faith look like as an action? Well, it's obedience. It's walking in obedience to Christ. It looks like while Satan is hurling arrow after arrow after arrow, it's combating them by walking in faith and walking in obedience to God by claiming his promises. Claiming his promises, that's a commonly used Christian term, but by that I just mean trusting God at his word and acting on that truth. Trusting God in what he says and acting on it. Right, it it is an action. God's love language is obedience. So how well do you know God's commands? How are you going to obey something that you don't know? Are you trying to learn them? Next is the helmet of salvation. Salvation comes through a person placing their full trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and it is to be the protection of our mind. Satan will try to attack what's called the believer's assurance of salvation. Uh, Assurance of salvation, it's a biblical truth that means someone who knows God, someone who truly knows Christ, can be assured that they're going to be saved from the power or from the penalty of sin because they have accepted God's gift. Right, so it's the, it's the truth that you can know that you have salvation in Christ because of who Jesus was. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. What that says is God literally views us as a new creation once we give our lives to him. Once we have true salvation, we cannot lose it. The enemy cannot take it from you. But what he's going to do is try to cause you to doubt. 
He's going to try to discourage you. But we can combat that with the assurance that we have in Christ and how that we know Christ has paid the penalty for us. So are you winning the battle for your mind? What are you feeding your mind? Have you truly made Jesus Lord of your life? Lastly, we have the sword of the Spirit, which Paul explicitly defines for us, which was convenient. He tells us the word of God, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word. There's one big thing that jumps out of the sword. Well, what do we know about all the other pieces of equipment is they are primarily used for defense, right? The helmet, the breastplate, the belt, the shoes, they're they're used for defense. But the one that's different is the sword. It's the one we're given for offense. The sword is that offensive piece that, that is that we can actively fight back against the lies of Satan with the word of God. We see in Hebrews 4.12, it says, The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God is alive and active. We can use it to fight back. But what does this look like? Well, we have a perfect example in the life of Jesus. It's, a couple time, it's mentioned a couple times in the Gospels. One of them we're going to look at is in Luke chapter 4. There's this story of when Jesus experienced temptation like us. We know the Bible says Jesus was fully man and fully God. And, and in that, that he was fully man, he experienced what we would feel. Right? So in other words, he experienced temptation like you and me, but he chose righteousness. He chose perfection. Right? He did not sin. But he felt what we would feel. And there's a story when he's, he's in the wilderness for 40 days, and the whole time he's being tempted by Satan. Right? He ate nothing that whole time, and as we know, Jesus would, was tempted as we were tempted. He didn't sin. He felt what we would feel, but choose righteousness. So uh, we see time and time again, Satan throws these arrows at Jesus, but look at what happens. The first one is this, Luke 4 Three through four. And the devil said to him, who is Jesus, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. Then it says, And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain in its glory, as in the earth, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then it says, And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand up on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to your test. We see quite literally the perfect example of what it looks like to combat temptation with truth. Jesus was able to use the word to see clearly and to remember and to rely on reality and not deception. He recalls the word of God and therefore can put it into practice. You see him say, it is written, it is written, it is said. He knows the commands of God and therefore can recall them and put them into practice. This shows the importance of being in and knowing God's word. Or, or even the, the, the value of memorizing God's word. I've seen this one reign true in my life greatly, the value of, of memorizing God's word. You see, when you memorize God's word, you can recall it in the moment, right? It, it allows me to remove myself from the moment, to think of what is true, what is reality, and think about what God says and put it into practice, right? And so 
One example of that in my life, uh, I have a, a, a few Bible verses memorized on the area of purity, of moral purity, right? And so a situation where that plays out is, you know, I like to go to the gym. When I go to the gym, I frequently see things I do not want to see that cause me to want to think things that I do not want to think. And so I have memorized scripture so that before I even go into the gym or while I'm there and I come across something I don't want to see, that I can think God's truth, refocus myself, remove myself from the situation, and focus uh, on what is true, God's word. Right, a couple verses come to mind. Matthew 5, 28. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I think to myself, I've got to control my eyes. 1 Corinthians 6, 13, you say food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. I think to myself, my body's meant for God. It's not meant for this. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5, but it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that each of you should learn to control your own bodies in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. I need to learn self-control, right? I quote God's word, and, and then in the moment I can think, I've got to control my eyes. My body is meant for God. I've got to have self-control. It, it helps me to remove myself from the moment and think about what is true. Guys, there is a grave importance of knowing what God's word says. It, it's only then when we can put it into action. So are you spending time in God's word each day? Are you giving your personal time with God the time it deserves? To be honest, that one hit home with me. Not every day do I wake up and I give my personal time with God the time it deserves. Do I really treat God's word like it is my way out? Like it's my office? So then Paul closes out this section in, in verse 18. He says this, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for the saints. Right, Paul notes here that the key to success in this war is two things. First is prayer. Prayer is how we communicate with God. It is how we surrender our control to him as our protection and our guide. It's how we confess when we sin against him. And remember that we may have lost the battle. We may have taken a few arrows. But we haven't lost the war. John MacArthur, he's a, he's a pastor, he writes this, Prayer is the very spiritual air that the soldier of Christ breathes. That's from a note he was writing about this section. He talked about all the components of the armor, but says prayer is the air the soldier breathes. It's the sustenance. It's our life. And what does Paul say? He says, pray at all times. Then Paul says the other key to success is to be alert. Actually, back in that story of, of Luke 3, of Jesus being tempted, it closes like this. The last verse in that whole section says this. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. He said, Jesus, you, you, you may have won this battle, but I'm coming back when you're vulnerable. I'm going to come back when it's opportune, when you least expect it. Satan is actively seeking to make you stumble. Are you on the alert? Are you putting on the full armor of God each day? Emphasis on the full. The armor is meant to be a unit. It's also a, it's a daily thing. It's, it's not this one time, put the armor. It's a daily 
are you daily armoring up? To finish this out, I want to take a look at, at one final word. Paul says to be on the alert with what? He says all perseverance. I said we'd end up here. Right, this is a reminder that the war we are in is hard, but the faithful are going to persevere. The Bible describes this further in its Revelation 14, 12. It says this, here is the perseverance of the saints, as in people who know Jesus, who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. You see, people ask the question all the time, hey, how do you know someone is saved? Well, like, like how, do they, how do you know someone is going to spend eternity with God? Well, the answer, you know, if have they made Jesus their personal Lord and Savior? We know that if you believe in, in Jesus as your Lord and Savior and believe in what he did on the cross and, and that he rose again on the third day, if you place your trust in him, you have salvation, right? But yeah, how do you know that you know that you know that someone's like how do you, How do you know that you know? Well, the answer is this. The, the person who truly knows Christ will persevere to the end. It's like the story we look, took a look at to, to start the night. You see, Mike Trout, he saw his teammate destined for failure. Elvis Puguero, he got absolutely exposed. He got beat up bad. But you know what? It was one game, and there are 162 baseball games in a season, which is way too many. Right? But one out of 162, that is nothing. Imagine if he lost that game and just gave up. Just threw in the towel. He's a relief pitcher, which means he comes in in the middle of the game. He could pitch multiple days in a row. But if he just lost once and then just threw in the towel, who would he be? Like, what's the point of that? One loss means nothing. Yeah, he got exposed, but now he knows how to prevent it for next time. In the same way, God is not asking you to win the war. He's already done that through the life of Jesus, his son. He's already won the, the war. He, we have victory in the name of Jesus. We might lose a battle. We might take a few arrows. You're going to get beat up. Guys, I know it's hard. I don't even know the half of it. I don't know what you're going through. I don't even know the half of it. You might get beat up. God knows that. What he's asking you to do is get up off the ground to keep fighting, to persevere. He's not expecting you to be perfect. He's just expecting you to persevere. All right, so like I said, to, to, to start off tonight, I don't know where you guys are at coming in this room. Like I said, I, I don't know if this whole thing of spiritual warfare is this new topic to you. I don't know if it's something you've heard about before or you've been walking with God for a while. I mean, I hope you got something out of it. I hope you know that there's a reality. It's going to be hard, right? But, but we know that we have victory in the name of Jesus. It's a war we've already won. But we have to fight daily. There's battles. But we can go into them knowing that God has provided us a way out. We've already won. Let me pray for us. Dear God, thank you for this day. God, I thank you for each and every person in this room. God, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. God, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God, I can't comprehend that. 
I can't comprehend even what it would look like for Jesus to experience the same temptation, the same battles, the same lies, the same deception that I face, but he didn't choose sin like I frequently do. God, I pray that every person in this, in this room would know the grace that you have shown them, the mercy that you show them, but would also know that we have a responsibility to get up off the ground and fight, God. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for your love, God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.